Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. Uh, this is episode number 277 of this show, and I am beyond honored to welcome Taylor Auclair to the show. Uh, in this episode, Taylor is going to share stories from his epic quest, epic adventure, running the Moab 240 um, about a month ago. And I mean, if you don't know about the race, it's 240 miles through Moab. Uh, every year there are at, like just insane adventures and crazy stories that come from it. Um, congratulations to everyone who lined up at the start line. Uh, we've had a handful of people who have been on this show who were uh, participating at the Moab 240, and I was rooting for each and every one of them. They are seriously my heroes, and truly everybody who participated in that. It looks like a fantastic time in a really weird, masochistic, and <laughs> painful at times way. Um, and no more so than Taylor's story here. Like his story, you know, there are the highs, highest of highs, the lowest of lows. Um, and some of the things that he talks about in this episode in a weird way have made me like really, 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 really curious about what it would feel like to do this race, you know, to be out in the Moab wilderness for two or for five days, basically, including through the nights. Um, and then there are other aspects of Taylor's story that sound really, really hard, <laughs> like really brutally hard. Um, specifically, like every how he describes every single night of running just sounds rough. So for everybody out there who, um, ran that race, completed it, DNF'd it, whatever. All of you are absolute champions, absolute badasses. Candice, congrats on a successful year. And uh, Taylor, yeah, man, your story. Your story is pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Uh, so without further ado, let's just get right into it. Um, this is Taylor Auclair's story um, from the Moab 240. Taylor is what, like two weeks removed from Moab 240? Yeah, about two and a half weeks now. He's moving quite well from what I can see, at least like shoulder, like chest. You can't see up. my feet. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So how's the recovery going? Recovery has been pretty good. Uh, you know, like it seems like the silliest thing to say post Moab 240, but it was so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but like in different ways. And uh, when I was done with the race, when I completed it that Tuesday, um, I mean, I was just like in shock in a lot of ways uh, for a lot of different reasons that I'm sure we'll kind of get into between yeah. like hypothermia. Um, I definitely had mild hypothermia. Um, uh, my feet have just kind of they've gotten better but they were in really rough shape yeah um and i'm still kind of dealing with the lingering effects of that uh but i've actually been like back in the gym for a week now i took like a full week off um my wife and everybody else in my life thinks that i should probably still be taking time off 
but uh, I don't find that possible. So <laughs> here I am. Uh, I'm really, I am doing a lot better already in two and a half weeks. That's awesome, man. Did it, how do I say this? At least for the time being right now, did it ruin running for a bit? Like I've heard from people who have done these big races like that, where they're like, for a while, I just couldn't get back into it. I don't know. So like, I definitely can't physically run if I wanted to right now. Yeah. I don't think that I'd want to, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like, no, granted also, like, I think some of my post-race goals are different from some other runners. Like, you know, like there's like a Facebook group for the Moab 240 participants and crew. And like, I look at that frequently and people are always talking about, oh, like I'm gearing up for next season's races. And like, you know, a lot of people are really focused on that, but like, I'm not necessarily... I'm a very goal oriented person, but I'm not necessarily a running oriented person. It's just something I like doing. Yeah. So while I do look forward to being able to run again, it's not like, it hasn't like ruined fitness for me for the winter or anything like that. Yeah, that's good, man. I think, I think part of it might be, and you mentioned it, you sent me a kind of a, a post that you made like a blog post uh, that was like a reflection of the race. And I think part of it, I loved the idea of like your mindset was like, you're on a quest versus it being a race. And I'm curious about a couple of things with that mindset. How many people do you think were had that kind of mentality going in versus like, I'm going to go for my best time and all that stuff. That's a great question. Um, Before I answer it specifically, I want to say, and I didn't really get a chance to say this before, like, thanks for having me on this. (laughs) Yeah, man. The reason that I like your podcast is because like, yeah, you, you generally like talk a lot about running and trail running and things like that, but you always use the word adventure. Yeah. And I've noticed that like in most of your interviews, like you're, you're always talking about like, what adventure do you want to go on and, and like looking at it from that point of view. And I've always related well to that. And, and that was certainly like my mindset going in, uh, there were definitely a lot of people there who were like there to just like crush it and get like a certain time, maybe get in top, you know, 50 or 30 or 20. There were a lot of people who had time goals Mm. and uh, I didn't like, that's not, that's just not how I approached it. Um, I definitely, one of the most important parts, if not the most important part of the race is like this, all of the time you get to spend with these people out there, right? Like you just, you end up spending like hours with, with somebody or a group of people and you get to know them really well. Like you get to an aid station and then they see your family and they're like, Oh, it's your wife and daughter. I know all about you too. And your wife's like, who the hell are you? Uh, So like when you, when I get to talk to people like in that capacity, I got to learn that a lot of people also had a similar mindset. Yeah. Like a, a lot of people, a just a wanted to, they just wanted to finish. Yeah. They just wanted to prove to themselves or to somebody, or they wanted to prove themselves over some circumstance they had that, that they could do that. And it, it seemed like a lot of people kind of had that, that adventure mindset, at least the part of the pack that I was with. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I finished in a hundred and four hours. So like definitely towards the bottom, uh, the back of the pack, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't one of the top people. So I didn't see those people, you know, it wasn't until like, I'd be at a certain aid station and and I'd hear like people talking, Hey, did you hear about like the guy who's in first and second and third and how they're 
they're racing. And I'm just like, my kind of, when I would hear that stuff, because you'd hear it, my, what I would think was like, well, I'm not running the same race. Yeah. It's a like they might thing. as well, they might as well be in a different part of the world. It just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that, man. Like that's, that's always been my mentality with a lot of these. And I find there have been like things that I've tried to race and it's just not quite as enjoyable or it's not as like deep of an experience as just being able to go out and just have the adventure to have the adventure, you know, and like being open to like, Hey, what am I going to discover along the way? You know? And I don't also- think I, I I'm curious. Cause I've, never done a race nearly as long as that. And I can't imagine keeping the racing mentality for days at a time. You know, that would be, no, that it sounds exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> and when you think about how exhausted you are doing like a four to five day race, I can't imagine adding to that. But also I think some races are like, are built for that mindset. Like you do, I don't know, for an example, like if somebody does like anywhere from a, a marathon to a hundred miler, that's probably going to be your mindset. Like I want to get a certain time. I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. But, and this was the only, this was the first long race, the real long race I've ever done. And, um, I just didn't think it was sustainable. And again, like kind of, as we talked about, it's just not in my character. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking to your character a bit, like I kind of want to hear kind of what led you into, taking on something as wild as Moab 240. Obviously, I think one of the aspects, we always see those Howie Stern photos and you're like, dang, that looks so cool. Uh, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I I've got my own now. <laughs> you got your own, dude. Someday. That's my goal. Yeah. I, I'll write it on like a dream board or whatever. I'll be like, <laughs> Howie Stern photo. Yep. Right. <laughs> but yeah, man, like what, what led you to it beyond the Howie Stern photos? Um. Well, I can honestly say it definitely wasn't those photos, although (laughs) those are super cool. For me, uh, so I'm a sober guy. And so I'm one of those people that you probably meet at a lot of ultras who's like, was kind of driven there through sobriety. Um, It's a huge part of who I am. So I'm like very, I think it's important to talk about. I, I, um, without getting into like too much detail, you know, my entire life I had struggled with, uh, alcohol in particular. Um, and years ago I initially got sober and I didn't stay sober. Um, and this is when I was married. Uh, I'm, I'm currently married. Uh, we have a 13 month year old daughter named Layla. My wife's name is Katie. And, uh, you know, as I was married, you know, Katie married an alcoholic and I was like really dealing with a lot of the issues that come with that. And I was giving her the issues that come with that. Yeah. And I've always been like into fitness in some capacity, like I'd go running a lot, but it was never more than like, you know, five plus miles. It was never crazy. Um, and then I finally got sober uh, about three years ago. Like I, I, I put more work into it than I've ever put into it because I was really trying to like save myself and I was trying to save my marriage. And when I kind of got sober three years ago, I started to realize a few things. And one of them was potential. Um, one of them was like realizing how much I'd been holding myself back my whole life by just obsessing over alcohol. 
And the other thing was that um, I had all of this like energy that needed to go somewhere. So like, like a lot of alcoholics or drug addicts do, like they focus those things on different things. And I think around that time, I found um, as corny as it might sound, because I, I know a lot of your listeners are like, oh, here we go. Like I, I found like Rich Roll, you know? Oh yeah. I found he's like, awesome I, though. Like it's so yeah. good. He's, he's really like easy to listen to, yeah. even though he's talking about these like really deep topics. And he's really well-spoken. And when I heard his, um, his story, it was via his book. I read his book and I didn't really know what ultra running was. I just knew like it was a means to kind of like be uncomfortable, suffer, but be better for it, which was the opposite of the way I had been living. I was suffering and continuing to be worse for it. And, and I read his story and I was like, his story mirrored mine in a lot of ways, like kind of a lucky guy, a guy who like worked hard, but also was born of, of good circumstance, but, but who was like throwing it away and, and who like discovered the side of himself and this ability to just like, or maybe not ability, but this desire to try and push through his own capacities and walls. And I was like, that sounds super cool. So I signed up for a 50 K and, uh, I remember, I still think 50K is like, that's a very long distance. I love it, man. I love it. And it's really, and it's really hard. And like some people will, will probably like might roll their eyes and say, well, you know, it's just a few more miles in a marathon, but like, it's not because I think that there's a difference between a marathon and I think marathons are phenomenal. But I think when you kind of go beyond that, you're kind of opening up a new window yeah. And, and you're, and you're just like looking at potential in a different way. And so I did my first 50 K and like, I'm sure a lot of people who did their first 50 K, I had no idea what I was getting into. It was all trails, but I didn't even know that they made trail shoes. Like I was wearing like Hoka Bondi's on these like really gnarly trails. And my feet were just like miserable. Like I had blisters in places. I didn't realize I had blisters that you could get blisters. <laughs> And so I did a 50K and it wasn't the fastest, but I did it. And then, so it was kind of like, oh, what's next? What's next? And then through like listening to people like him, uh, like uh, Rich Roll, I started to like realize that there was this whole other world of like pretty extreme races. Yeah. And for some reason, and I'm not saying that this is like objectively a fact, but for me, when I heard about the Moab 240, that seemed to me to just be like the ultimate one for me because like it was in a part of the world that I was really interested in that I had never been to, which maybe speaks to the adventure thing we're talking about. Yeah. It it was a very extreme distance and I knew that like climate played a huge part in it. And so I, I kind of was like, well, I really want to do that. And like on that newfound sobriety cloud that I was on, I was like, well, I'm not going to limit myself anymore. Like I'm going to go ahead and do things that I know are hard. And it was also kind of around the same time that my wife was pregnant uh, with our first. And I was like, well, I also believe in like leading by example. And so I really think that I should do this. And so initially I, the initial plan was to do it in 2022. And then for a variety of reasons, we settled on doing it this year. Yeah. And, and it was it kind of just like one of those classic things. Like I put it on the calendar, I signed up and then I just showed up. 
dude that I want to ask a little bit about uh, just a little bit about becoming sober and the constant like endurance that takes or like perseverance that takes and compare that to something like the Moab 240, you know, or yeah. training for the Moab 240. Like I imagine it's something that has to be on your mind every single day. Um, you know, at once you did make that decision to become sober and then same with like Moab 240, I I'm sure it's on your mind every single day leading up to the race. Yeah. I think that there's a very clear relationship to those two things. And I met a lot of sober people on their race. Like within my first two miles, I was talking to this dude with 11 years of sobriety who was telling me this totally insane story about how he got there. And I think that you find that through like a lot of those races. But uh, I, yeah, I think um, the idea of just kind of like when you decide or realize or however you want to frame it, that you need to get sober, you, uh, you know, you realize that you need to go to a, a place that you've probably never been. You know, you need to realize or you do realize that you, you have to like reach this new level within yourself, whether it's spiritually, emotionally. And even physically in certain ways, because like if you've just been drunk for so long, you have to kind of like relearn how to do a lot of things. And um, and I think that when I when I got sober and then I started training for like that first 50K, I was pushing myself physically in these new ways that I had been doing kind of spiritually and emotionally for sobriety. Right. Like I found myself, OK, I've been working a five day week and now it's. Saturday morning, which is the first morning that I have the chance to sleep in and or like wake up next to my wife. But instead, my alarm's going to go off at 3 a.m. Yeah. And I'm going to go put in X number of hours. And it's the same sort of like grinding work that you do to, to get and maintain sobriety. It's like, like I got sober via Alcoholics Anonymous, which me saying that in this podcast probably is a uh, contrary to Alcoholics Anonymous. But, uh, you know, like you have to show up at meetings and you have to like do the work, you know, like do the work is like something you hear all the time when yeah. you're like in the rooms and like doing the work when you're getting ready for or training for something extreme, like a race, no matter what the, um, the distance is like, it's, it's the same idea. Right. Uh, and then like, um, I also like that you brought up the training because I think the training I mean, in theory, the training should be harder than the actual race. Yeah. Like the race should be like on autopilot. I wouldn't say Moab 240 was that way. Uh, it I can't wasn't. imagine it was. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty impossible thing to recreate until you get there. But like, again, like all of those like early mornings and those late nights and those like, well, I'm going to like work out twice uh, because like my foundation for fitness is based a lot in CrossFit. And, um, so it was like, all right, well, I'm going to like, just like blast my legs, like as much as I can today. And then tomorrow, that means I have to do a long run on super sore legs and just kind of doing things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, it's that persistence that you learn too. like, it's, you know, it's not something that's innate until you really start putting in the work, I think. And maybe it's, maybe that's just for me, but I know for me, like once and there's a lesson I learned younger, I feel like, but you learn, Hey, putting the work in, doing these small things 
is going to lead to these bigger things. And I think ultra running is just such a wonderful like analogy for that. It does. And it also prepares you for everything else, right? Like yeah. if, if you learn whether it's ultra running or whatever your endeavor is like learning those hard lessons of like hard work pays off. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. like when you learn that, like you just apply it to everything. Yeah. Yeah. Man. You know? One, I think, especially as parents also, like I try to keep that in mind because it is, and you, you don't want to see your kid and I know your kid's only 13 months, so you're probably not witnessing this yet, but you don't want to see, it's hard to see your kids struggle, but it's also, you know, it's necessary because you have this perspective from these things, you know? Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about burn still higher. Um, yeah. what is, what is that? Where did that name come from? Like, what is that? Can you kind of. Sure. sure. So some context is that, um, leading up to the race, obviously like, you know, so Katie and I have like lived all around, um, we've like lived all around the country. So we have like great groups of friends all, all around the, uh, all around the country. Uh, and we had so many people when they realized like that I was going to do this race kind of reach out and say, well, like, how do we like, it's just, I don't know. It was hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. Whether it was the training, the race, everything that went into it. Right. So like my wife, Katie made an Instagram and it was called burn still higher. It is called burn still higher. It's like burn.still.hire. And it was like just a means to communicate what was going on. And the reason that we, that we chose that name is one of my really good friends, Dave, who is also on my crew and he was a pacer for me. Um, super intelligent guy. I had been kind of talking to him about like, what should our kind of mantra be? And the mindset going into it kind of related again to that adventure thing is like, well, he, let me back up. He, he found this Marcus Aurelius quote for meditations and it talks specifically about like, um, using everything around you that's happening as fuel to fuel your own fire and thus burn still higher. And it's a pretty long quote, so I'm not even going to try and, and butcher it here, but the last, the last, um, the last words are to burn still higher. Um, so I think you get the idea and, yeah. and, and in taking that, we kind of decided like, Hey, that kind of says like everything that we want to, because like, it's this idea of like, not necessarily like the mindset wasn't like, we're going to go out there and we're going to freaking crush this thing. We're going to like, you know, just like ruin it. It was never like, we're going to go own Moab. It was like, Moab's going to own us and we're going <laughs> yeah. and we're going to like accept that yeah. and we're going to use it and we're going to like grow with it. I know that sounds super corny, but it's like, it's definitely true. And so Dude, that's where that came from. Yeah, man. Well, I got to say, I've, uh, I, I do a leadership class with my seventh graders and we've been talking a bit about stoicism and the obstacle cool. being the way, which is a great book. I don't know if you've read that. Um, oh. But in the book, and I just remembered this because we watched a video on it yesterday. There's a whole story about Edison and a factory that he had. And I, I'm going to butcher this story as do most <laughs> podcast hosts with any sort of historical story. Um, but he had this factory and then it lit on fire, like complete accident, you know, and he's out there watching his factory burn and like, 
a horrible circumstance, right? Like you're like, this is terrible. Why? Like that you should be crying right now or like cursing at the skies. And he just told one of his kids like, Hey, go get your mom. She's never going to see anything like this again. You know, let's enjoy this in the moment and then worry about the rest of it tomorrow. And I think, you know, especially when you get to the darker spots during your 240 mile race, like that's almost the only mentality you can take. It is because you can't, I don't know, some people might disagree with me, but I don't think you can just power through everything. Yeah. Like you need to embrace, uh, you know, you need to truly embrace it at, at some points. People always say like, there's that old adage of like embrace the suck. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably saw a dozen people wearing a shirt that said that when I was out there <laughs> and, and like, it's true. Like it's there for a reason. Like it's just soak it in, you know? <laughs> Um, so speaking of that, let's get kind of into the race a little bit. When, when did it start really getting hard? It's a 200, once again, reminder, it's a 240 mile race through some rugged, rugged terrain in Moab. Um, when did for you, when did you realize like, oh no, I'm in for a long, long race. I think the first night. Um, so it starts very early. Uh, I think we started at 6am. Yeah. Um, uh, Friday before Columbus day. Um, my main concern at that point was that, so it, it's for those who don't know, it's a counterclockwise loop that starts and ends in Moab, Utah. And so you start in Moab. You does, where does it, I've always wondered this. Where does it start at? Is it at Milt's? ice cream shake shop because it should be and i'm if i talk to candace again i will recommend that uh no it's at <laughs> it's at a moab resort rv park i think it's called okay yeah but i think a, an ice cream shop would have been more appropriate <laughs> yeah man that would be a good that'd be that extra motivation at the end you know what i probably i could have used it um so yeah it starts and ends in moab utah 240 mile loops counterclockwise so it basically goes uh, Moab, you go down towards Canyonlands, uh, then you hit mountains to the south. Uh, Shea Mountain is the most notable okay. climb that we have to do. And then you kind of come out of there. And then when you're kind of uh, southeast of Moab and yeah, basically just like the easternmost point of the course, you hit the LaSalle Mountains, which are were not not fun, but awesome. But also one of the prettiest mountain ranges I've ever been to. Cause you get, you're up in the mountains. Like it's just straight up mountain wilderness, but then you look down and you just see red sand and red rocks every, in every direction. you're like, Whoa, this is And also (laughs) this time of year, the foliage was really outstanding. Yeah. Uh, And I'm from new England. So like, I'm used to like really good foliage and I don't think I have seen foliage that beautiful since I was like a kid in Vermont, like just, It was great. And then when you come through there, you, you know, you come down through the mountains and then you, you basically come back into Moab. Nice. Uh, so like the most of the first day we were really concerned with the, what we expected to be a lot of heat. I think normally the temperatures are well in the nineties. Um, and I was really worried about water. I carried three liters on me. Like most people did, but still like, you know, I'd say an average of 18 to 20 miles between aid stations sometimes in that kind of heat, it's still dangerous. Uh, so it, it started raining pretty early, um, which cooled things off. And I was, I was really happy to like, like, obviously nobody wants the rain because you're starting wet, 
but like I was happy for that trade-off. I was like, I'll take, a, I'll, I'll take being a little wet over that kind of heat because things cooled off and uh, made it a lot more bearable. It definitely made it harder to run in places because things get pretty muddy, um, but it, it was bearable. Yeah. So then when we kind of like got through the Canyonlands portion, that first night uh, was kind of going through some just really brilliant looking canyons. Um, and that first night is where I earned my trail name, which was Crazy Legs, because uh, it, it was almost like it was like clockwork. Like as soon as the sun would set, I would just get so tired and I couldn't walk the straight line to save my to save my life. And I and I just think like and we also we didn't have pacers at that point. I mean, you, you don't get pacers till I believe it was mile 72, Okay. which for most of us was the first or the second morning. So we all had to kind of endure the first night. And that first night was just, I met a lot of great people and I got to spend time with a lot of great people. Uh, I had, I definitely had some miles that were alone, but it was that first night that I realized this is wilderness and I'm really just out here alone. Yeah. And I think that that's like a sobering, uh, that's a sobering realization. Um, And you're way out there too. Like people don't understand, like even if you're like, in the vicinity of Moab, it's like, dude, no one's getting there. Like you're in these yeah. deep canyons and there's no way of getting there unless you're like going on foot or mountain bike or something like that. Yeah. And I'll tell you like destination trails does a good job communicating. They're the company that puts it on. They do a good job communicating. Like, like they were sending emails that were scaring the hell out of me. They were like, <laughs> if you need to DNF, do not DNF at aid stations A, B, or C, because like we might have to do it via helicopter. It's going to take a whole day to get you out of there. You know what I mean? Like that is wild. When you read that, you're just like, oh, like of course that's what I'm getting into. But wow, that's really what I'm getting into. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh man, dude. And I I appreciated your race report because you really opened up about how hard it was to go into the night in yeah. these 200 milers because you're going into it multiple times. Um, and each time it's just a different level of suck. It sounds like. Yeah. It becomes something, I don't want to say that you dread because I really, I mean, no amount of PMA can necessarily get you through all of it, but like you, you do to a certain extent, start to dread like, Oh, the sun's setting again. Yeah. And I still have like, whatever it may be 12 miles to get to the next aid station. And it's just like, whatever the terrain is at that point. And you're just like, it's hard not to slip into like some negative thinking without a doubt. And I think that's part of the challenge. Yeah. I love the, like the humanness of that where it's like, yeah, as humans, we should be like, when it's getting dark, like, Oh shit, it's getting dark. Lions are going to come out. (laughs) Yeah. So it's funny you bring up lions. Uh, (laughs) I don't think, not that I know of. I don't think anybody experienced mountain lions this year. Yeah. But last year, I'm pretty sure I read online that somebody had been taking a dirt nap and they woke up with the mountain lion in their area. Nope. And so like, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't, I did not grow. I know you're, you're in Colorado, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I didn't grow up anywhere near mountain lions, like deer and like skunks are what are (laughs) you scared of skunks (laughs) yeah speaking of my cat as soon as you started talking about lions he's sitting in front of my computer he just started moving around he sensed i saw his whisker yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
Dude, that's but, crazy, uh, man. Yeah, there's that extra fear that happens when you're in the dark because you're in the wilderness in the dark, dark. Like yeah. there's nothing around. Totally. That's crazy, um, man. I so you did mention in your blog post, like in a weird way, a very weird connection here, but it was like a flashback to partying days. And I think it was a flashback to probably the uh, the rose-colored glasses that you we all look on the past where you're like, oh, that was the good aspects of this experience, you know? So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, are, are you referring to kind of like how... Just a group of people appearing and then you're all buddies and then yeah. they're leaving. Okay. But you're, but you did mention like the negative downside is like not really being present for those interactions. Yeah. So like I have great memories from like my partying days of just like being with my friends, you know, like getting yeah. into trouble, doing stupid stuff. Like <laughs> those are good memories. But yeah. there's like when you get sober and or older, you realize like, but was I really there for that? Yeah. Or was I just kind of physically present and was I just kind of like putting in an appearance and like, do those interactions mean much? And so when I was out there, like I would notice that like you'd get to an aid station, especially at night. And like, it would just be a very joyous um, experience for everybody. Cause I yeah. mean, like the food is pretty good. You know, you can finally like take care of your blisters. There's a fire, which I always stayed away from. And I recommend more than almost anything for anybody listening to this, if you ever do a very long race, uh, unless you need to for safety reasons, stay away from the fire because it will just drag you in and <laughs> you won't escape. Make, it'll make you feel comfortable and it'll yeah. make you start questioning why you're there. And I saw a lot of, a lot of people fall into that trap. Yeah. Anyway, that's not, um, to kind of go, get back to it though. I noticed that like when that would happen, like it would be really joyous and then like I would leave with like a bunch of people and we would all like just try and keep each other awake, you know, and we're all kind of like, again, I'll go back to like my, the trail name I was given, like crazy legs. Like we're all just like stumbling. Literally, we're all just stumbling. Um, we're all having conversations at 3 a.m. that don't make a ton of sense. And then you kind of like, you know, you get to the next the next spot and you're like, did that even really happen? Or like, what was that guy's name? Or like, I think he was from where? Like, <laughs> very strange. Yeah. And it really like also highlights like the difference between being out there during the day versus being out there at night. Yeah. Yeah. One, you also, I, I just was curious because you mentioned like the second night, the real cold set in. I think you were yeah. in the mountains there. Um, yeah. What does that feel like on an already worn down, beaten up body? You know what I mean? Like yeah. the cold just has to just feel like almost like a whole new level yeah so that was definitely like you asked earlier like about when things got hard well you know the first night was definitely when i realized things were going to get hard or were getting hard but the second night was when things definitely hit their their low for me personally um i can be a pretty heady guy sometimes and i think i was concerned to some extent that like i would be in my own head too much. And I found that that didn't happen because I was so goal oriented the whole time. It was like, all right, I'm eight hours ahead of the cutoff for the next aid station. Like, and you just, you stay on like these goals, but some of the physical pain, you can't really compartmentalize the same way. And so 
by day two, my feet really started to really take a beating. So I, I normally wear a size 10 and a half shoe. And I had read a lot about how it's probably a good idea to bring a larger shoe with you. So I was planning on bringing a size 11 shoe. And I couldn't find them in the shoes that I, in the shoes that I was running in. So I got size 11 and a half. And I was like, I'll bring them, but I'm never going to use them. They're way too big. Well, it turns out my feet swelled so much that I went up a full shoe size and they were probably still too small. That's and crazy, man. so like, there's like just this massive swelling on my feet. I had a few toes that I, I didn't really like have the conversation in my head that they were broken, but in retrospect, they felt broken. And like, I felt what felt like, like stress fractures, like on the bottoms of my feet forming, like just this like really gnarly pain. And so um, going uphill was actually like a little easy, easier for me, but believe it or not, going downhill because of that foot pain was a lot more difficult um, because the, my toes and like my feet would just like, you know, they just kind of slam into the shoe the whole time. And so on night two, I had a, my friend, Dave, we're, uh, we're doing the, basically it was the ascent of shame mountain. And it was before you got to the ascent, it was this kind of just like, it was like a little descent. And then you're going through these, these very large old dried out riverbeds. So it's just like these giant rocks all over the ground. And it's just really painful, like on, on feet that are already hurting to kind of like navigate. And on top of that, it's dark out. Um, so I'm already like starting like old crazy legs starting to come out. I am. I probably slept for an hour, maybe a little more at that point, uh, in about 36 hours. Um, so like sleep is just, you know, it's just not there. Yeah. And, um, I just realized that I just started kind of like going out into these dazes, you know, like my friend Dave said, like, you know, like you'd be talking and I didn't know what you were talking about. He, he actually made a comment to me. He goes, it actually reminded me of uh, some of the old days when we'd go drinking together because like you would just get too drunk, yeah. you know, Your and it brain was like, is just fried at this point. There was just no activity up there, man. It was just like <laughs> just moving. And, and it was like kind of interesting because I didn't even realize. So that night in that area, it got below freezing. I don't even think I really realized it because I was just kind of so exhausted. Yeah. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I wasn't like, I mean, I was able to move and have a conversation, but it was just, it took way more, uh, effort and energy than it needed to. Yeah. And, um, you know, it got to a certain point where I take a trail nap, I take a trail nap. Uh, I would try to take a trail nap and then I just, it was like not sustainable and we still had quite a ways to go. And we knew that at the end of this section, there was a massive climb. Um, I think it ended up being the the biggest climb of the whole race. Was that uh, into the LaSalle's then? No, this was going up to the um, the summit of Shea Mountain. Um, I could be wrong on that. Maybe it's just how it felt at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, we're kind of going through that and we still have like eight miles to go, which could have been, it might as well have been 55. And, uh, you know, at some point I just heard in the tone of his voice that he was concerned about me. Uh, you know, he was worried about the cold because he wasn't as exhausted as I was and he could feel the cold. 
And he knew that if I kept on, like, if I was really going to take a, a nap out there for longer than a couple of minutes, uh, you know, it might get a little dangerous. And he also, I think, understood like, hey, man, like you came into this section with an eight hour lead on the cutoff time. And that eight hour lead is slipping away because um, um, we were going pretty slow, you know? Yeah. So, you know, eventually we got there, right? Like clearly we got there. And I had this very strange conversation in my head where I said to myself, like, you're either like, you're going to get out of this and it's either going to be like, they're either going to medevac you or they're going to, or you're going to get yourself out. And then when you say that to yourself, you realize how ridiculous it is. Like, of course you're going to get yourself out. Yeah. What are you going to like, just like sit down? <laughs> no, like you're, you, you work to get here. So get there. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and so we did that. And the funny part is that right before this, like this ascent and anybody who's listening to this, who has done this race is probably laughing because it's just like, they're kind of switchbacks in the sense that like you, you can't see the top top, especially yeah. in the dark. So like you get up and then you realize like, Oh, there's more. And then you get up, Oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. But like at the top, we could see lights and we knew the aid station was still a ways away, but we're like, wait, maybe our like watches are off. Maybe that. And then we get into our heads. That's the aid station. Right. And then we start hallucinating and we start talking about how we'll actually it's probably a ski lodge, right? Because that makes sense. There's a ski <laughs> lodge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, totally, dude. <laughs> so, so we're like, yeah, let's just get up there. They're going to have what we need. And then we get up there. And what it was was uh, there was a, a runner who was just like in a complete daze. I'll never forget the look on his face. And he was like sitting. He was sitting at the top. but He was sitting on a rock, like looking out towards where we had just come from. But he had his headlamp on. And it was on like a really like strong, like, yeah. you know, a lot of looms or whatever. And, and, uh, all of a sudden we realized it's just a guy with a freaking headlamp. <laughs> the opposite of <laughs> a ski lodge with warm, like hot cocoa and stuff. With anything. Yeah. And I'll never forget how angry I was at him. Like, <laughs> I thought that was totally illogical. And I wanted so badly to like look at him and be like, turn your light off. You thought you like, were a ski lodge, dude. You're screwing everybody up, man. But then I was like, I like looked at his face and he was just like in a daze. And I was like, nah. <laughs> but, and it's like his pacer was right behind him. And he just looked at us and he just goes, sorry, man. Like he knew, he knew what was going on. But uh, that's an funny amazing thing, story, dude. I love that. Yeah. But the best part is that when we got to the top, we still had a ways to go after that. But when we got to the top, the sun started peeking out. Like it was, I think the sun was rising around like 7.15-ish when we were there. And so it was like about that time. And my, my buddy Dave, like he kept on laughing because he's like, as soon as the sun sets, you just turn off. You're just like, you're an idiot. But as soon as the sun comes up, I like looked at him and I was like, all right, let's run. <laughs> and he's like, what? No, like where, where'd this come from? And I yeah. was like... I was like, I put on music. I was like singing. I was like, my spirits were like as high as they had been in two days. He was like, as soon as that sun comes up, man, you're just like a different person. That's, so. that's what I got the most out of reading your race report. Um, and I'm sure it happens to everybody, but I don't know why if with yours, I, it was like this big realization, like, whoa, like the sun makes such a huge deal. Um, yeah. I don't know why it does that. Yeah. Me. I'm sure it's not like that with everybody, but 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about your feet because you said your feet were in a new realm of pain. And yeah. this is a quote blisters were merely an inconvenience. And I'm like, Whoa, yeah. that's messed up, dude. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I kind of talked earlier about like all some of the races that I had done leading up to it for training. Um, blisters were always my blisters is the one thing I can't figure out. Um, and I know that some people have the same problem. And I also know that some people don't get them and I don't understand those people, <laughs> but like, you know, I read a fantastic book, uh, that a lot of people listening to this have probably read it. I think it's called how to fix your feet. And yep. it, it goes into immense detail about like, not only what causes blisters, but how to prevent them, how to treat them. I, I mean, I read that book front and back multiple times. Um, I still couldn't get blisters down and I still can't get blisters down. I've gotten them a little better, but the point is just like, that was always the bane of my running was like, Oh, here it comes. There's a hot spot. I'll treat it, but it always gets worse. And I got to the point by, I think that story I just told like Shea mountain where my pain in my feet was just, it stopped being external and it was all in, it was all internal. It was just like, um, again, I don't think that I actually thought to myself, my feet, my, or my toes might be broken, but when we were done with the race, I realized, oh, my toes might be broken. And it's like, you start to like deal with these other pains. I started getting, um, I've been dealing with some knee pain for a few years in my yeah. right knee. Um, and I, I've gone to physical therapy for it. I went to physical therapy before the race leading up to it, sports massage, the whole thing to try and get ahead of it there was a point in that race where like the knee pain was the worst part. There was a point in that race where like, even though I was preventing it, the chafing was the worst part. There was a point where like the, the, um, the pain in my feet was the worst part, but it just, all of those things got, and I know I'm painting like a, a pretty horrible picture, but like it was, it was consistent pain, you know? I mean, yeah. that's what it affects. And so like, it got to a point where like, I would think actually, I, I'll tell you this we'd be running or we would be power hiking a certain section. And all of a sudden a blister on my, the bottom of my foot would pop that I didn't know was there, which was like really, really painful. And also like really shocking. Like yeah, when you're, like, you're I didn't just, even know that was there. And you just like feel a blister pop on the bottom of your foot. You have to then it kind of like changes the way it changes your gait for the next like mile or so until you get used to it. And it's also like, you just scream, right? Like you just like scream. Like I didn't realize that was there. And if you had asked me like pre-Moab, like what my biggest physical problems would be, I would have absolutely said blisters. And then I get to that point, like I had written, like they were just an inconvenience. Like I felt them, but they were not the worst part. Yeah, dude. I, so I just watched, I started watching uh, the new Dune movie. Have you seen it yet? Cool. Oh, I'm looking forward, but I haven't. Okay, so I won't spoiler alert anything, but there's a scene at the very beginning where Timothy Chalamet, he's like the main character, like the hero, whatever, you know. It's the hero's journey where he's still at the point where he doesn't believe he's a hero. He's like a yeah. spoiled rich kid at this point. And he gets tasked with like putting his hand in this box where there's going to just be like this immense amount of pain. And during the scene like it starts he's just like ah like screaming like oh this is the like you're like this is the worst this has to suck 
And then all of a sudden something just clicks in his brain and he just gets used to it. And he just like has this really calm look over his face. And I was like, Oh, this is such a perfect scene before I talked to Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true, man. You just get used to it, huh? You get used to it. And also like you change your mindset on it and you just realize like, one of the things, so like whenever I'd see my, I asked, I asked my wife that every time, so not all of the aid stations are accessible to crew. Um, a lot of them, they, they just crew can't get to. So like the ones that I would see my wife and she would have our daughter with her too, which was a huge pick me up for me. Yeah. Uh, I would say to her, every time I leave an aid station, I want you to tell me, um, I think I said to her, tell me that. I'm lucky to be out there and to enjoy it or something along those lines. But I always said it was definitely tell me that I'm lucky to be out there. And so like, she would look me in the eye every single time and she would just be like, you're lucky to be out there. And like, I found that to be super powerful because despite, I mean like despite whatever pain and despite how this sounds, my race experience wasn't overshadowed by pain. It was a part of it. Yeah. Almost an inescapable part of it something that I had kind of like made peace with beforehand, but like I was out there for the experience. I was out there for myself. And so like everything that I saw, all of the stretches at night where the, the stars. So I'm, I I told you before this, uh, I'm in the Navy. So I spent a lot of time like out at sea on ships and the sky that you see out at sea when you're in the middle of the ocean is just like pretty indescribable. Yeah. And there were stretches out in the Utah desert where I would turn my uh, headlamp off and I would look up and I would see skies that rivaled what I've seen at sea. They're just unbelievable. That's so crazy. So like when you're having those experiences, you, um, I don't know, man, you just, you deal with the pain because you're lucky to be out there. You don't get those skies in Norfolk, huh? You certainly don't. You do get (laughs) handsome biscuit, which I don't, I'm just got to make a recommendation to you really quick. (laughs) You know Norfolk pretty well, I see. We we stayed there for like a month uh, for a rotation for my wife's med school or a cool. residency, excuse me. And yeah. I was there with my, fi- you'll relate to this. I, w- I was on summer break. I was there with my five month old and it was so freaking hot. Like when we went yeah. there, I was like, we're going to be at the beach. Like this is, we're going to be outdoors. And then yeah. it was like in July. So it was oh, so God. hot and she was five it's months human. old. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't. I, I I took her to Mount Trashmore. Mount Trashmore. Yeah, yeah. Shout out. The, the worst <laughs> named place in Norfolk. <laughs> it's a giant pile of trash that they covered with grass. Um, yeah, they have good hills there. You can run they hills. Do. There. They do. <laughs> and I went there and I'd run around pushing the stroller, but I do that like seven in the morning because by nine it would be so hot. And then we just sit in this apartment for hours and i'd play yahtzee against myself and binge watch movies and stuff like it was it was awesome like i loved spending time with my daughter but you know 12 hours in a tiny apartment with a five-month-old is difficult (laughs) i will say that uh there's a lot of things i love about norfolk and there's a lot of things that kind of drive me crazy about norfolk but norfolk made pretty good training for moab in the summer oh dude i can't imagine (laughs) really hot it can get around here and like, I would just, you know, some of my training would be like, I'd be at work and I'd be like, all right, it's like, it's like high noon. It's like noon or like yeah. one. Yeah. And I'd be like, I have like two hours to spare. I'm going running. And it's just like, oh, you, as soon as you step outside, you're just like, this is 
terrible. Your coworker is probably like, what did he just say when you left? They all think I'm <laughs> out of my mind. <laughs> awesome. And well, so to take us to the opposite end of that spectrum, uh, Moab ends with a snowstorm and like mm-hmm. sleet raining from above. It's as if, you know, speaking of the hero's journey, you get that last thing thrown in your face at the yeah. very end. You're like, dude, 18 miles. Like, I just want this to be drama free. And then it's like, nope, not going to be. Let's talk fitting. about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very fitting end. So um, we we're talking earlier about what the course looks like and kind of the, I think for a lot of people, the pinnacle of the race is you get to LaSalle mountains. And like you said earlier, they're beautiful. They are beautiful. And um, so when we were flying out West to go, we got an email from destination trails that said, there's a storm move that, you know, we think is going to hit the mountains the day or the couple days that everybody's yeah. going to be there. So they they activated a snow route. So I don't think it changed the mileage very much at all. Yeah. But what it was, it brought the altitude down. Um, Which was really smart because that yeah. was the same weekend north of you guys in Utah where yes. like, and the, all the headlines are like 80 people evacuated, which is true to an extent but like people basically they had to shut down this race there were some people stranded a lot of them were able to kind of get out on their own power but still it was the foresight by like this experienced destination trails group to be like we need to reroute because this could cause all sorts of dangerous issues and make even more danger for people who have been out there for a couple days already 100 yeah they made the right call um and it also put the fear of god in me for a minute like you know like you know that it's good, the weather's going to be crazy, but like <laughs> I remember, we we were in the Dallas airport flying into but flying to Grand Junction, Colorado, and uh, we got the email, and I'm like, we're like going through the airport, and I'm reading it, and they're talking about like all this extreme snow and stuff, and I'm like, what the fuck am I getting myself into? <laughs> like, oh my god, we yeah. need to stop at REI again, and I think I need to reassess my like jackets like plans, like. So, yeah, so they activated the snow route that was just a little uh, lower of an altitude. So, you know, you're not going to escape the storm, but it should be, it shouldn't be as extreme for us. And like you said earlier, there was a race north of us that didn't do that. And a lot of people were were in trouble. Um, So, yeah, going into the LaSalle's, just a beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, I knew that I needed to get off. So I basically started at the foot of the LaSalle mountains in the morning. I got a couple hours of sleep. Um, I woke up and it was like, all right, 7 a.m. I think it was seven go time. And like, kind of like looking at what I had ahead of me that day. Um, Cause I, I was, there's no pacers that day for me. Um, I was just like, I need to just get through this. Yeah. And I want to be off the mountains by time the sun goes down tonight. So I mean, I really, that I viewed that as the most important day because I knew that like, if anything happened, if, if my pace slowed, if, uh, I made some bad decisions that I could get stuck on the mountain in the snow at night, which is like super dangerous, a critically terrible decision for, uh, for a guy like me at night. And who's pun who's already like punch drunk and beat up. 100%. I'm on yeah. day three, right? Day yeah. Day three. No, day four. It was day four. Um, so anyway, 
the ascent was awesome. I got up there to the aid station, the first aid station. And like, I just like hauled ass through it. I mean, it was my quickest turnaround at an aid station. Um, I was just like, I had a drop bag up there. So it was like, um, you know, I, I changed socks at every opportunity. Um, I took care of my feet at every opportunity. Of course, the blisters didn't stop, but I did my best. And so I got up there, changed blister. Oh, I'm sorry, changed socks. <laughs> took off one blister, put on another. Yeah, added five more. <laughs> uh, literally just like got as much food in me as I could and also like took a burrito to go. Uh, put it put put a bunch more layers on and the staff up there was like you know just they're they're just they're trying to get people through they're like don't stay here that you need yeah. to get through the next section because the next section was 23 freaking miles was that porcupine rim no that was um two porcupine yeah, rim. you know what I, it was yes okay and that's rugged it's pretty rugged um you know what i'm sorry i don't think it is porcupine rim was the second to last aid station okay. so this, okay. was, this was before that gotcha um so we're going, I leave that aid station and I just pressed, I found the snow route. It wasn't easy. Uh, it was like definitely a very challenging route for some reason. Maybe I had it in my head, like, Oh, they're like trying to make it easier on us. Like, no, they weren't. They're just looking out. They're making sure nobody died, but it was still like, no, you still have like tons of Hills, like go get the hill. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so anyway, I was, I got through that. It was absolutely beautiful. I got off most of the mountain before the sun went down. Um, and then I got to the next aid station and I got all that done. When I got to that next aid station, my crew was there and I had a pacer, my friend Dave again, to take me to basically take me home. So I had, we had two sections left and I was in really bad shape as far as sleep so like they just as much as i kind of even wanted to push um i think we all knew i, I needed some sleep yeah. so they had a they had a u-haul that was uh that was parked over there and they put a bunch of cots in it so it smelled awesome and i got like an hour maybe a little more of sleep i believe maybe an hour and a half and then dave wakes me up and he says something that i never expected to hear he he kind of like he like gets in, he's trying not to wake anybody up. He's like, Hey, Hey, it's snowing out. So make sure you <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, it's snowing a lot. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, we left there and uh, I mean, no exaggeration, man. Like when we left, it was maybe like drizzling a little bit, but before we got to the next aid station, which was the second to last one, so I think that one, that next one was Porcupine Rim, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, we were legitimately caught in a whiteout. Yeah, I mean, it was like, nuts, dude. it was, um, it was pretty intimidating. Like it yeah. got to the point where Dave, my pacer walked in front of me. Um, and I was right behind him and I just stared at the red pacer on his back and I just concentrated on that. So like, I was doing my best to keep myself awake. I mean, it's, it's the middle of the night. We, I don't think that we, you could probably see maybe two and a half, three feet beyond you. It was just the, the snow was just pretty incredible. Um, we made it into the last aid station about an hour and a half before sunrise. We made the call because our initial plan was just like, just, just crush the last couple, just get it, get it over with. Yeah. At that, at that point I was like, I was kind of over it, you know, yeah. like I was just, I was ready to be done. 
Yeah. I felt like I had been through a lot. It was beautiful. You've gotten your experience you wanted. Yeah. Like get me to my wife and my daughter and burritos like now. So, you know, we get to that second to last or that last aid station. And, uh, you know, we decided, Hey, like, let's play the safe. Let's wait till the sun comes up. Let's wait to make sure that maybe the storm passes. And, uh, we did that. We sat in the, in the, uh, in the tent. I sat by the fire for the first time. Wow. Five days. I felt like I earned it. That's some willpower, man. I know, but also like I was so wet and cold that You're it was like, pretty, it was pretty. This good. is a tool that I need right now. One hundred percent. Yeah. But also, I'll be honest with you. Like, I don't know if if maybe maybe the staff doesn't want to hear this, but like my experience is that I certainly wasn't truthful the whole time I was doing that race all the time about yeah. how I felt. You know, like. When I was sitting in that aid station, I was shivering pretty uncontrollably. I am almost certain other people were too. And like, you know, like the staff, they're all volunteers and they're amazing people. And they come by and they're like, what do you need? How are you? What can I do for you? But there's still a part of you that like doesn't trust it. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, I'm doing great. <laughs> I don't need anything. Because it's like, I can taste it. Like I'm there. And I'm yeah. not, I'm not going to like, yeah, I'm shivering. I'll be fine. It's that weird I mean, that's the trust that is put into all the racers too, you know, like the whole chant that you say at the beginning, you know, is like, ultimately we're out there to support you, but, but bad things can happen. They do. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely saw people, um, I mean, I'm not trying to ever suggest that you shouldn't tell the truth, but I mean, definitely some people did at some point, some people we're hypothermic and we're like, yes, I'm hypothermic and I'm in trouble and they did the right thing. And, uh, they, I'm all, I'm sure that they had the DNF at that point. Yeah. But like, I remember just sitting in that tent and just being like, having a moment of just like, I cannot stop shaking. Shut your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Don't say a word. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the sun came up, it abated, the, the weather abated and, and we just had our final push. And I'm almost certain that final one was 18 miles. Um, and it was really, really stunning. Some of it was really hard to kind of like move on because the terrain was very rocky. Um, but then you get to like, you get to the home stretch and you basically like, you see the Colorado river again from a distance. And I know that you live in Colorado, but like, I'll tell you, man, like when we went, when my wife, myself and my daughter went, so we flew into grand junction and then we drove down to, to Moab. And when we were in Grand Junction, we stopped at this REI to just like get a couple last minute things. And the guy that was working there, he was like, wait, you're going to Moab? He's like, don't take 70. He's like, take this Dude. other road. Oh, what a good tip. 128. Yes. I think it's 128. Yes, I think you're right. That sounds familiar. I have a map. Hold on. Oh, shit. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, I think it's, I think that it's not is. on my map. I had a map. I was prepared, but it's not on there. <laughs> like the most beautiful stretch of road, like this side of the PCH I've probably ever been on. Like yeah. just it's mind blowing. Believable. But my point is like at one point we're like driving, this is like a few days before the race started. We're driving and I was like, is that the Colorado river? And my wife's like, I don't know, like whatever, who cares? And I was like, <laughs> pull over. Like I, have been waiting so long. Like I, 
I love the West. I love the idea of the West. I like, I've been reading about the West for my entire life. Yeah. Like I've never been to Utah. We have, we've been around other places in the West, but I've never seen the Colorado river. And it was a big deal for me. Yeah. And like, you know, like we like went and put our feet in it and it was a huge, it was, just, it was, it was big, man. It was big. Yeah. And then, so like when we're at the end of the race, and we're coming back around like this bend and you see the Colorado river again, it just like ignites something in you. And you're just like, Oh, I'm back home. Like Moab is there. Yeah. Like I can see it. Like I can see the lights. Let's go. Yeah. And it's just really special, man. And then you just, you come around these, just these, maybe one of the, definitely one of the most gorgeous portions of land I have ever stepped foot in and you're just kind of like you're moving through it and you're just starting to soar. And then as you alluded to earlier, all of a sudden you look up and you see like storm clouds and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> no. like, I taste it. What are you doing to me? <laughs> and then, and then like out of nowhere, man, it, uh, you know, you end up, so it's the, the course spits you back out on, if it is indeed 128 that we're talking about, it's the same road. It spits you yeah. back on it. Yeah. And you, I think like the last three miles or so are on 128 and bring you back in. And so like, you know, you've been there, right? Like, you you know what that stretch looks like. It's, it's just awesome. unbelievable. Yeah. But all of a sudden, man, like I, I had been wearing a t-shirt again. Like I had like stripped layers off. Um, I was like, I can finish in a t-shirt. The weather's starting to get really nice. And then all of a sudden... Like, I just feel freezing pebbles, like <laughs> slamming into me. I look at my friend, Dave. He's just, he looks at me. He goes, of course, of course. Dude, this is the, I mean, I always make movie analogies. This is like in Halloween when she thinks she beat Mike Myers and then he sits <laughs> up behind her and you're like, no, yeah. no. 100%. <laughs> Good timing on that reference, by the way, too. Yeah, man. Halloween week. Halloween uh, weekend, baby. <laughs> dude, that's amazing. So, yeah, just real quick, like, describe the finish line for people. Yeah, not so at, the, luckily, not at an ice cream shop, it sounds like. Yeah, it should be next year. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's petition. Yeah, but you were um, freezing cold, dude. You wouldn't have appreciated the ice cream. I still would have eaten ice cream. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the, the end was just incredible. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I've thought about the, I've thought about that race every day since i mean for at least a year and a half yeah uh moab has loomed really large in my life for a long time and so i've thought about what that would be like and i about a mile out my friend dave looked at me and he just said he just looked at me he said go take it bro He's like just go take it and like i mean i've already talked about the pain i was in i stopped i really stopped feeling the pain at that moment like i i sprinted in That's amazing. um i ran this sounds ridiculous, but I ran a six minute mile on the, on the final portion in <laughs> because I was like, so jacked. Yeah. And then, so like you come, you come around, you follow everything, you follow the cones. I'm just like trying to like breathe because I kind of knew I was just gonna, you know, I knew I was going to cry. Um, that race, it, it makes you very raw emotionally. The first time after, so after the first night of being out there, when I saw my family for the first time, like I, I cried, like I just, you're just raw. And I knew that at the end I would be, I would feel similarly. Yeah. Um, but in like a very proud way. Yeah. 
and uh yeah i i went through that finish line and just like i just felt a real explosion of emotion and gratitude and just like i can't believe we fucking did it <laughs> like we did it my crew like yeah. who were just so outstanding all of the training all of the those early mornings that i talked about that my wife you know like allowed me to have all that all that time like it all concluded and it all came to that moment and i'll never forget it and the pictures like they posted the pictures recently a yeah. couple days ago and like yeah i love the pictures of like me like going down like you know i think it was i think it's called jacob's ladder and like Different all of these spots yeah gorgeous places but like the there's like there's a couple pictures of me finishing that just mean the world to me yeah yeah man and it's hard to like it's really hard probably to describe like you know it was a five-day experience you know like yeah. all the thoughts you had and all of that but to like wrap up can you share like maybe one kind of epiphany that you might have had out on the course i'll tell you that um it didn't necessarily happen on the course, but it definitely happened after. Like reflecting. Yeah, it was the sense of uh, confidence that I've that I've held since that race finished, and it's not a sense of confidence of like I ran the Moab two forty. It's a sense of confidence, or even in my like running ability or my ability to like do anything physical. It was a confidence in myself as a human to be able to like set a goal for myself yeah a goal that a lot of people like a lot of people were like that's insane like i yeah. can't even wrap my head around that why are you doing that like oh i'll be on my couch while you're doing that like all those comments and then like follow through with it and then to, to actually like see it through to completion that that was the biggest deal for me and i think like you know you and i talked before i think we started this about being fathers yeah and, and like to me those two things have a really clear relationship because i got i did this thing i put myself in this position this really uncomfortable position and i finished it and i'm also you know like i'm in charge of, a, of another human being and it's like i can do anything that i really want to do yeah. And like, that's the lesson that I want my daughter to have, you know? Yeah, and man. like, I just, that, I don't know, man. I feel like it just kind of relates to that. It's so in, like, it's such an empowering lesson. And I think writing it down like you did will hopefully help it not like fade in time for you. You know, yeah. like you can always go back and read those reflections, those like raw thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I want to say thank you for coming on and sharing, dude. I've been waiting to hear a Moab 240 story. And I'm like, I don't, as the race was going on, I'd see someone run like a picture on Instagram of someone running it. And I'm like, follow that, follow that, follow <laughs> that to like kind of somewhat understand the journey. Um, yeah. I appreciate that you come on and, uh, and talk. And hopefully I think we didn't mention this on the podcast. I had the booster last night. So as he's watching, I'm just slowly devolving. And as you were yeah. mentioning the cold, I just started shaking. <laughs> and I was like, here we go. Last time when I got the second one, man, I ran such a high fever and I had to call uh, 
my friend Emma during that to talk to her about um, this race that she wanted to do. And the whole time I'm like, dude, I'm like maybe hallucinating right now, just so you know. <laughs> so, so I appreciate it, dude. I, I really do. Yeah. I appreciate you like caring and reaching out and like giving me the opportunity to talk to you about it. Cause like I said before, uh, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm sure there's more podcasts out there than you can count. There is, but like, yeah, I've man. always like, I've always really been a fan of yours. Uh, I like how you, uh, again, I like how you look at these things through the lens of quest and adventure. Yeah. And I like how you just will talk to just like some normal idiot like me and like actually give me the opportunity to share my experience. So well, thank it's cause, you. It's cause I look at all of them, all of you guys who finished that race as like superheroes. I'm like, what you did? What? <laughs> but yeah, man. Awesome. Well, um, if you have further adventures, can you kind of share your Instagram? Like, are you going to continue that now that you're done with this adventure? Yeah. So, um, I definitely have a lot of things that I want to accomplish when it comes to doing things like that. Uh, as far as races, I'll probably be doing like a lot, like a lot of like maybe some local stuff through 2022. Yeah. I feel like I, I just want to like hunker down and like give time to my family yep. and just like focus on that before doing something else. Um, I don't know when this is going to come out, so I'll make sure I talk to my wife before she hears this, <laughs> but what I want to do next, and I've already talked to a buddy about it, uh, is climb, um, Mount Rainier as training for Mount Denali Ooh, in Alaska. That's so cool, that, man. That's like very much in line with the sort of thing I want to do. I want to be able to like take this opportunity and that confidence and like, I don't know, what else can I do? It doesn't have to be running. What else can I do? And that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Well, I, without like egging you on too much, um, cause I'm afraid your wife's going to listen and be like one star for this guy, one star <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> Come on. But dude, if you do, man, I'd absolutely love to hear about, about Rainier yeah. and Denali and all of that, dude. So that's, absolutely. that's cool. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, one more time. Can you just share that you're the Instagram where people can yeah, sorry. follow? So, um, burn.still.hire is, uh, the one that we made for the race. And I think we would use for any future endeavors. And then my personal one is, uh, T R and then my last name, A-U-C-L-A-I-R. So T-R-A-U-C-L-A-I-R. Uh, but that's just really pictures of like me and my daughter, like uh, yeah. out for walks. So most people probably don't care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice, man. Well, awesome. We'll get back at you at some point in the future. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. That wraps up this week's episode of the Like a Bigfoot podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Taylor, huge thanks to you, man. Your story not only scared the crap out of me about 200 milers, <laughs> it intimidated me. I'm going to be honest, dude. All your, like every time you mentioned running it at night and just how the mood changed, man, that is, that has to be such an intense moment. And then the anxiety during the day of knowing like, hey, darkness is coming and you're still going to be out here. You're still going to be pushing forward. Um, that is that is incredible. And and just hearing, you know, and, and I'm sure every single person who did the Moab 240 or every single person who's done a 200 miler like comes out of it with their own unique perspective and story. Um, but I 
but I would guess that the commonalities would be just this sense of of just like the vastness and the grandness of the world around them. Like if you travel 240 miles on foot, I have to imagine you you look at an area differently and you look at your own life and your own resilience and your own, you know, emotional core a lot differently than people who have not intentionally kind of put themselves through something so extreme. Um, and I thought Taylor's story like really hit on that. So, so thanks, man. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this, like when you, when it comes to these things, it's kind of like, like when it's, when it's a big endurance event or, or a big adventure, it kind of allows you in that moment to think about and start questioning like why you do the things that you do in your life. Like, why do you do anything? Why do you do what you do? What's the point? What's your purpose? What outcomes are you looking for? Um, and so often in regular life, we don't ask ourselves these really important questions. I mean, why we do the things we do, that has to be one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves. And, and yet, for whatever reason, whether it's you just get so busy or you get so distracted or it's just it's just life is that constant to-do list and you don't even take time to slow down and actually start just like intentionally thinking about the world around you. Like we just don't take those moments. Um, and for me, I'm like, man, it, I love that about ultra running. Like that's like my favorite thing is it gives me that space. It gives me that time. But I am like, why can't I just, why can't I do that in my day to day? Like, why can't I just take those moments to consider those questions, you know? And I was thinking about, I was on a run this morning and, you know, I started kind of getting to that space where I was like allowing myself to think about these deeper things, these deeper concepts. And I'm like, man, this is so cool. Like, I'm so glad this is why I love running and adventure and exploring and being on trails. Um, but then there was a little voice that's like, dude, you could do this every day. Like this is available to you every single day. And yet there are times where you choose to be distracted or you choose to be so into the to-do list or like what's the next thing that you don't even give yourself that 10 minutes of just slowing down. Um, and so really for me, like over the next few months, like I don't have any athletic goals planned right now like obviously I want to go out and go exploring because that does bring joy to my heart and all that stuff uh but I do think like taking those moments to intentionally slow down especially as we're coming upon like the holiday season which I mean I have a feeling was like originally intended to like slow people down right like get a week off, get a couple weeks off here and there, you know, or get a couple days off here and there, be with your family, slow it down. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just the way we do things as humans, it, it, the holiday season now becomes, you know, do this, do this, do this, got to do this, got to do like all of these things, which is kind of like 
in some ways like defeats the purpose of the break, right? Defeats the perfect purpose of like intentionally just kind of being present. Um, and so I think that's a goal. How to achieve this goal? I have no idea. I'm open. <laughs> I'm open for any advice. Um, but that is something like I'm going to intentionally think about. And I have a, like a whiteboard in my office um, where I put quotes on and stuff so I can look at it as like reminders. And I think I'm just going to put that. I think I'm just honestly going to write slow it down. Slow it down, my man, uh, on that board. Um, so, yeah, that's something I learned from from thinking about these adventures. And from the 277 episodes I've done so far is you know, the, these endurance races allow us to have this catharsis, which is so cool. And I'm so happy for it. But I also think there's an opportunity for that same catharsis in every, every day, if you find it or if you look for it. So, so yeah, anyways, uh, yeah, man, we'll get back at you all next week. Appreciate you listening. Um, hope you all having a good week.